Peter's a fascinating character. How many of you say, you know what, uh, there's a point or two or three that I identify with Peter. <laughs> I see some similarities in my life, and uh, I think all of us can see that uh, to some degree or another. Last week, we began to look at his life. Uh, we began tracing it uh, from his fishing business there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, uh, through his call to leave it all behind and follow Jesus to become a disciple. And then we ended with his dramatic failure there in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also later on at the trial. Uh, we covered a lot of ground last week. We're going to cover a lot this week as well. I trust this is familiar territory for most of us. Um, and so if you're struggling keeping up, take those notes and read back through it later on, and I think that will help you. Um, as I think about Peter, I think about his, his, uh, his rough-and-tumble personality. He was a burly and a boisterous fisherman. Maybe that's a way to word it. But in this fisherman, Jesus saw the raw materials of a future apostle. And that's a good reminder for us. Jesus can see things sometimes that we can't. Aren't you thankful for that? Jesus can see things in us that we may not be able to see, that other people may not be able to see. And as he sees those things, he's going to do what it takes to draw those things out. And um, it's a reminder that raw materials, Peter had the raw materials, but those raw materials need to be refined. You don't just go take a chunk of iron ore and use it for any functional purpose. It's got to be processed. It's got to be refined and made into steel so now you can do something with it. And I think we see that here with, with Peter over the course of the next three years. Jesus began to invest a huge amount of time and effort in the, in the refining process for Peter, patiently working to bring him from where he was, his place of self-sufficiency, to a point of complete dependency. And God wants to do the same thing for us. And as we move through that process, we'll become more and more usable, just like Peter did. You know, I'm, as I reflect on this process, I think we see a little bit about how God works in our lives, too. I was struck by the patience of Jesus in working with Peter. So patient, uh, working with him over and over again. I, I'm thankful for his patience in my life. He doesn't force things to happen all at once. He takes his time. It doesn't seem like he's in a hurry with Peter, and I don't think he's in a hurry with us. He didn't give up on Peter when Peter stuck his foot in his mouth so many times and when Peter just couldn't seem to figure it out. And God's patience with us also. We see that patience evidenced during the call to discipleship. Um, it, we saw last week a three-step process. He came and made an introduction, and then he came and said, hey, why don't you come and follow me? I think that was a short term. Check it out. Get your feet wet a little bit. And then coming back the third time for this permanent call, Peter, are you willing to leave all behind and follow me? It didn't just happen all at once. It was a process, and Jesus was patient with him. We see patience in the discipleship process. Uh, those, those hour after hour of teaching and training and correcting, uh, providing for Peter and the other disciples opportunities for success, but also putting them in situations where they would fail, but under the guidance of Jesus and being there to rescue him and, and help him get back on his feet. You can see the way Jesus used different circumstances to strengthen their faith and to grow their understanding of what ministry really looked like. We can see ways that Jesus was maturing their spiritual awareness and increasing their divine dependence. And all of this took place over a period of time. Uh, it was not rushed. Today, we're going to see the patience of Jesus again during the restoration process. And again, it's a reminder that God's not in a hurry. Folks, we, we sometimes want to run ahead of God. We want it to go faster than what God wants it to go. Slow growth is good growth. Now, we don't want to get to the point where we stagnate. That's not growth. 
But slow growth, as long as we're growing, that's good. And we see that here with the man Peter and the patience of our Lord. When we left Peter last week, uh, we left him in a dark place, didn't we? Uh, Peter was discouraged. He was broken. He was defeated. I'm sure there was an overwhelming sense of personal failure. Uh, He'd made his his claim to love the Lord and to be loyal to the Lord, and it was so fervent uh, one minute, and yet he failed so miserably and so publicly the next. I'm sure that was, was difficult. I can't imagine what it was like to hear that rooster crow and to look into the eyes of his Lord and realize what he'd done. Overwhelmed by shame and regret, or bitter tears as he ran blindly from the courtyard to find a place where he could just be alone. And what that looked like, we don't know. We don't see anything else about Peter uh, between this time when he leaves the courtyard and the resurrection morning. So we don't know what that looked like. I'm sure the blow to his pride played into the mix, but I think him leaving in tears was primarily at the thought of disappointing his Lord. That was really what affected Peter. We took some time last week to think about this and to put ourselves in his shoes. We don't know a lot about those days, those dark hours. I'm sure they were long. We do know that Peter was with James and John and the other disciples on resurrection morning because that's where the ladies find them. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story. We also know that Jesus is about to work this failure together for good, just as he promised he would. We're about to see Jesus in the process of taking this defeated disciple and transforming him into a victorious apostle. We want to see how Peter brought, how Jesus brought Peter from this point of failure to a point of being faithful. And that's what we want to look at. We've already seen Peter the fisherman. Uh, We've seen Peter the follower, the disciple. We've seen Peter the failure. And today we want to look at Peter the faithful. And like I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to look at this process of restoration and then secondly, the results of that restoration. So when I mention Peter's restoration, I'm sure all of us have a particular story in mind. Does your mind go back to the Sea of Galilee and the fire and the fish being cooked over the coals? Uh, My mind goes there too. But I think in actuality, that was the end of the process, not the beginning. As I, lo- as I was thinking about this week, I see four specific steps in the process of Peter's restoration. First of all, we see a previous prayer. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We'll look a couple of these verses up. Um, some, as we get on into the message, we probably won't be able to look all of them up in the book of Acts. Uh, but I want to see this, Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> we mentioned it last week, picking up in verse 31. This is Peter's denial. And after that, here's what what Jesus says. The Lord said to Simon, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But notice this next phrase. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, when you come back to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus is praying for Peter prior to the failure. And I think the seeds of restoration are sown right here at this moment. As Jesus is praying in advance. He says, Satan desired to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. How many of you are bakers? You know what a sifter is in that context, right? Uh, we don't use these much anymore. But I remember growing up, we always had the sifter. The flour always went through it, and you had to crank the little handle, right? And that wire uh, went against the, the screen, and, it, and it, it processed everything through that. I'm sure that wasn't a comfortable process if you're being sifted. But what did that process do? It took out any impurities that might be there in the flour, pieces of hull, things like that. I think it aerates the flour too. I'm not a baker, so I don't know all the ins and outs of that. But there's a purpose for it because my mom told me to do it, and she wouldn't tell me to do it if it didn't have a purpose, right? Well, 
We'll go with that. I'm a parent, and I never told my kids to do things without a purpose, I'm sure. Satan desires to have you that he may sift you like wheat, and Jesus gave Satan permission. He gave access to Peter within certain parameters. He didn't just say you can do anything you want. We don't know what those limits were, but I'm confident he put limits on it. But he says, in the midst of this, I have prayed for you. It, it might be the prayer that we see in John 17. I don't know for sure. Uh, it's hard to know all the timing here, but it, it's interesting to read through that intercessory prayer in John 17, thinking about the events in Peter's life. I would encourage you this week sometime to take a day and just read through that chapter and think about that prayer in light of Peter. Did Jesus have Peter in mind when he was praying it? He had all of us in mind, but specifically, it's likely. <clears throat> he says, I prayed for you. My question is, was his prayer answered? I prayed for you that your faith fail not. Did Peter's faith fail? Well, you look at the language there, and I think the understanding Jesus had is, yes, you're going to fall, but you're not going to fail long term. I'm praying for you that this does not become a permanent ministry-ending failure, that you don't just say, all right, I'm going to hang it, I'm going to walk away from my call to discipleship, and I'm going to be done. That's what Jesus was praying for, and I think in that sense, the prayer was answered. Jesus was confident that it would be. Notice what he says, when, you're, when you are converted, not if you are converted, when you come back to me, here's what I want you to do. So in Jesus' mind, uh, he knew that Peter was going to come through this, and this prayer would be answered. What a wonderful thought. In the process of restoration, before Peter even failed, Jesus was praying for him. And you and I can have this same reminder. Jesus is praying for you. What are you going to face tomorrow? What are you going to face on Tuesday or Wednesday in your job, in your life? You don't know what that is. God does. And Jesus is already praying for you that you'll be able to face that and to face it correctly. How do I know that? Romans 8, 34. says, talks about Jesus Christ dying and that he's the one that's risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And Hebrews seven twenty five says much the same thing. He ever lives to make intercession for us as believers. Jesus is praying for you, just like he was for Peter. I take comfort in that. I find great hope in the fact that God doesn't write me off and push me away knowing the failures that I'm going to have. But he lovingly prays for me in advance, and he finds a way to work that failure for his glory and for my good. It's an amazing God that can do that. So we see the process of restoration started here with this prayer. Secondly, turn to Mark chapter 16, and we see a purposeful instruction. This will just take a moment back in Mark chapter 16. I don't know if I'd seen this before until I was reading through the parallel passages this week. I'm getting old enough that, you know, sometimes I have seen it before, but I don't remember. And so it's all new, you know. That's a good thing, good place to be. Mark chapter 16 and in verse 7, the ladies have come to the tomb. It's the resurrection morning. Uh, they've shown up there, and obviously the stone is rolled away. And the angel that's inside there instructs them in verse 7. Notice that he says, go your way and tell his disciples, and notice the next two words, and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee, and there shall you see him as he said unto you. Go tell his disciples, oh, and by the way, make sure, make sure you tell Peter. Why was Peter singled out in this? Well, Jesus wants to make sure that Peter understands. He wants to make sure that Peter knows. He wants to go out of his way to make sure that happens. Make sure that Peter knows I'm alive. Make sure Peter knows that I'm about to go and see him and that we're going to have a conversation. Again, a wonderful picture of Jesus' love for his children, a comfort and encouragement, letting Peter know it's going to be okay. Tell Peter. Well, that leads us next to a private encounter. 
If you want to turn to Luke 24, you can. We'll mention that here in a, in a moment. Um, so the ladies have come to the tomb. They've, they've left. They're obeying the angel. They go back and they tell the disciples. And Peter and the disciples, they, they just assume that the women are correct, right? You know the story? What did they think when the women came? They thought it was idle tales. Well, that's just a bunch of foolishness. Uh, the, the ladies, they didn't believe the report. But Peter had enough faith to go and check for himself. So you know the story. He and John run to the tomb, and they find, just as the lady said, the stone's rolled away, the body's gone. But he steps in, and he sees the grave clothes are folded uh, intricately and just laid there, not like in a haste or in a rush. They're folded up. And I think for Peter now there's a glimmer of hope. Wait a second. Maybe he really is alive. And, And the text says there that he left the tomb wondering in amazement, trying to process what he'd just seen. And somewhere between this moment and the end of the day, Jesus appears to Peter individually. Uh, there in Luke chapter 24, it's the, the context is when the two that were headed to Emmaus and met Jesus on the way, they've come back to Jerusalem. And they're now talking to the disciples that have gathered together. And the disciples tell these two men, hey, Jesus already appeared to Cephas. He appeared to Peter. And so these two now recount what they had seen. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses, and it specifically says he, he appeared to Peter and also to James. This is one of three individual, private, individual visits that Jesus makes after his resurrection. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and then James. They're the ones we know for sure. So somewhere here in this period of time, Jesus appears to Peter one-on-one. You know, God just tends to draw the veil of privacy over some of these intimate moments. We don't know what was said. The counselor in me, the pastor in me, would love to know how that conversation went. What did Jesus say? How did Peter respond? How can I help somebody else in a hard situation that's dealing with guilt and with shame? Uh, What Jesus did there, I'm sure, was masterful. But we won't know that, the answer to that, this side of heaven. But were there awkward moments? I'm kind of guessing maybe so. Was it hard for Peter to make eye contact with Jesus? The last time he made eye contact with Jesus, he ran out weeping bitterly. I'm sure that was ingrained in his mind. Imagine there was a strange mix of emotions. Incredible joy that Jesus Christ was alive. But that overwhelming shame for what Peter had done. I don't know. Did Jesus still tell him and reaffirm his love for him? Peter, I love you. Peter, I prayed for you, but I'm still praying for you. Peter, this doesn't have to be final in your life. Peter, this doesn't have to define you. Peter, what happens next is what's really important. Peter, I've not given up on you. Don't give up on ministry. I've got more work for you to do, Peter. Let's go. Let's get back on the bus. I don't know what all was involved in that conversation. But the fact that Jesus went out of his way to meet specifically with Peter is a wonderful thought to me. He took time to seek Peter out and patiently work towards this end goal of restoration. And that brings us to John 21, if you want to turn there with me. The final step, I think, in this restoration process. John is the only one that records this incident out of all the Gospels. The disciples have been told by Jesus to go to Galilee. Uh, When we read through these different accounts, we need to understand that there's 40 days from when Jesus rose from the dead till when he ascended to heaven. Uh, 40 days is a long period of time. We're talking almost six weeks. And to have just a couple of visits with Jesus, sporadic visits with Jesus, it wasn't like they were following him and with him 24-7. And so what does Peter do here in chapter 21? 
Um, he's supposed to go into to, to Galilee and wait for Jesus there. And so when they get up there, um, in verse 2, they went together, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said unto them, I go fishing. And they went with him. Now, I know there are some that would say this is Peter. Uh, he's going back to his former life. He's leaving all this discipleship business behind. He's going back to fishing. And I don't know. I don't see it that way. Uh, maybe as I get older, I, I've been le- I'm learning to give a little bit more grace because so much grace has been given to me. I really see this as Peter just uh, doing a couple of things. One, he's not the kind of guy to sit around and wait. He's not an idle person. He's a hardworking man. And he's there in Galilee. The boat's accessible. Uh, I'm sure they can use the income. He's not with Jesus 24-7. He knows what he needs to do, and so I think that's part of what he's doing. I don't think he's going back to his formal, former life. Do you think maybe with what he's wrestling in his mind to do something with his hands was a good thing? It helped his mind to, stay, to, go, to keep from going back to what it was focusing upon. Well, they go out in the boat and they fish all night. And as the little chorus, children's chorus says, they fished all night, but they caught no fishes. Is that what you're thinking? Uh, those little songs kind of stick in your mind. I was going to sing that this morning as a congregational song, but I didn't know if you guys would remember it. Uh, Peter, James, and John in a sailboat, you know, that whole, all, the, all the song that goes with that. Jesus from the shore calls out to them in the early morning hours. Have you caught anything? They holler back, no, we didn't catch anything. Hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? Okay, we'll try the other side of the boat. So they try the other side, and what happens? A deja vu moment. All of a sudden, their nets are completely full of fish. And John has this moment of recognition where he says, Peter, it's the Lord. And so Peter bails out of the boat, and he swims to shore. And he finds Jesus there on the shore with a fire already going and fish cooking there on the coals. And so the disciples and Jesus have breakfast there around the fire. And at the end of that time, Jesus tenderly confronts his disciple. Peter, do you love me? And you can read down through this account. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And we see this confrontation repeated three times as we go through here. The language of the passage is hard to be certain. The the masculine ending of this word, these, and the neuter ending are the same in Greek. So we really don't know, is Jesus saying, do you love me more than these in the neuter sense of the boats, the fish, the lifestyle? Do you love me more than your previous way of living? That's a possibility. Another possibility is, Peter, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? I know you love James and John and and Andrew, your, your brother. I know you love these people. But do you love me more than you love these? A third option would be this, and I think this is the likely one. Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Wasn't that the boast that Peter made earlier? Lord, I'll go to death to the death for you. And even if everybody else forsakes you, I will follow you. (laughs) Implication, I love you more than they do. And so here Jesus is challenging him, I think, on that thought. Peter, do you really love me more than these and Peter, I don't even know that he makes eye contact. He says, yes, Lord. Lord, you know I love you. I think that cut him to the heart when Jesus asked that question. Have you ever had your love questioned? <laughs> it's hard. But here we see a different Peter. There's no bragging. There's no boasting. There's no lifting himself up. It's like, Lord, you know my heart. And we're not going to take time to get into it, but there's two different words used for love here. And Peter's not even willing to claim that same agape love that Jesus used in his statement. 
He's not even willing to say I love you to that degree because he knows he just failed on that level. But you can hear in his voice, I want to. <laughs> Lord, I want to love you this way. And Jesus responds and he says, feed my lambs. He gives Peter a new responsibility. In a sense, he's renewing his commission. And I said this happens three times. He repeats it three times. And I don't know what to make of all that. We see a lot of threes in the story. There's three times of prayerlessness. Three acts of denial, now three questions and three answers and three admonitions. Uh, I think the Lord is trying to make a point. Peter, do you really love me? I don't want some casual response from you to say, yeah, flippantly, I love you. I want you to really think about this because where I want to take you over the next years, you're going to have to have an incredible love for me to go where I want you to go. And he makes that sure in Peter's life. Well, we go down through the rest of the passage and we see that the Lord tells Peter he's going to get another chance to prove his love. Now, Jesus prophesied that Peter would martyr, but would serve a martyr's death. And we find that historically uh, probably coming true. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Jesus is taking Peter lovingly and patiently from a place of shame and defeat to a place of humility and dependence. And my friends, that's a very, very good place to be. A place of humility and a place of dependence upon our Lord. The Peter that left that seaside encounter would never be the same again. He was radically transformed and changed. And, and we don't know the exact timeline of all the events that happened next. Uh, we do know that Jesus appears to, uh, to, the, to all the disciples here. There's 500 witnesses that see Peter, uh, see Jesus. We know that he's commissions the, the, the disciples. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit and then gives them the instructions to go out into all the world and make disciples of everybody that believes. And at the end of the last meeting, as we see in the book of Acts in chapter 1, we see Jesus from the Mount of Olives ascending bodily into heaven and a cloud coming and receiving him out of their sight. Imagine what that must have been like. So much so they're just standing there looking. <laughs> they keep looking up into the skies. This is incredible. And an angel has to come and say, hey, go to Jerusalem, get busy. God gave you instructions. Now go get after it. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look now in the time that we have left at what Peter was like after this time of restoration. Is there a difference between the Peter that we see in the Gospels and the Peter that we see in the book of Acts? Night and day. A dramatic change, a total, total difference. And we're going to go through these quickly. I may not highlight everything. Uh, again, it's in your notes there. You're welcome to look these passages up and read and think about it more on your own. Uh, but just a second, let me, let me chase a little bit of this. Uh, that cold still bugging me a little bit. So what happens after the ascension? Well, the disciples go back to Jerusalem, just like Jesus tells them to do that. But what do they do first? They go back and they go to the upper room, and we see in verses 12 through 14, especially focusing in verse 14, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. The first thing they do when they go back is have a prayer meeting. And I don't think it's just one prayer meeting. It says they continued in prayer. And we'll see that phrase regularly here through the first part of the book of Acts. They're realizing where their dependency comes from. And they're spending that time in prayer. We go on in the passage a little bit further and we see Peter leading a business meeting to replace Judas. They understand from the Old Testament, from Psalms, that, Peter, that Judas's position needs to be filled by somebody else. There needs to be another apostle. And so they, they work through that and they pray again and they talk about it. They cast their lots and, and God chooses Matthias. Well, we get into chapter 2, and, and what's the big event in chapter 2? The day of Pentecost. The, Peter and the disciples are waiting in the upper room, and they're praying again. And the Holy Spirit comes, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And we see divine empowerment. Everybody heard the, the words of their preaching in their own language. We see the first time when, when tongues are given, uh, where, where they're speaking in other languages. We see divine enablement. Peter is preaching a sermon here. Read through his sermon sometime. It's incredible. The power, the courage that he has as he's preaching to these people, uh, preaching with conviction. It's a different Peter than we saw leaving the courtyard in tears. And then we see a divine outcome. Anytime God empowers and enables, uh, he gives an outcome. 3,000 people saved and baptized and added to the church. That's a pretty remarkable. You could retire on that. You could have a message like that and be one and done and say, all right, I, think, I don't think I can ever eclipse that. I just retire and, uh, and thank the Lord for what he allowed me to do. But that's not Peter. Uh, he just keeps on going and going. We see God's power revealed now in chapter 3 as Peter heals a lame man. Uh, Peter is given the ability by the Holy Spirit, the power by God himself, to perform these miracles. And here's a man that's been lame from his birth, and, and he sees Peter coming, and he asks for alms. Give me some money so I can, I can live. And Peter looks at him, and he says, silver and gold, I don't have any of that. But what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And what happens? The guy gets up, and he's jumping around and leaping and praising the Lord. And people are watching this. And so what, is, what does he do next? He gives a shortened, condensed version of his Pentecost message. He preaches again to these people that are watching, and the word is getting out. Everybody's trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. I thought we put Jesus Christ to death, and now everybody is talking about Jesus again, and, and there's miracles being done, and they don't know what to do with it. So we get to chapter 4, and we see these Jewish leaders come, and they're grieved, it says in verse 2, because they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They don't like what's going on. So they arrest Peter and John. And it says they spend a night behind bars. The next day, they're brought before this council. This is a powerful council. I read down through here, and you can see the, the Jewish leaders, but specifically Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the, the two high priests. This was the same council that Jesus had just stood before two months earlier. The same council that had condemned Jesus to die and put him on the cross. The same council that Peter, on the outskirts, had run from and fled. And now Peter is standing before that same group. Peter, what are you going to do? Peter, do you really love me? See where those questions came in handy. And notice what Peter does. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by God again, says, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day we be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, points a bony finger, whom God hath raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. The stone which the set at naught of the builders is become the head of the corner, neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Wow. Imagine the courage that it took for Peter to step in and to preach like that in front of the same people that put Jesus Christ to death. He's a different man. Well, they order the disciples to cease and desist, and Peter diplomatically but firmly holds his ground. They're threatened, and they're released. By the way, what are the other disciples doing during this time when they're on trial? I think they're having a prayer meeting. We don't know that for sure, but we do know that as soon as Peter and John leave, they go to the rest of the disciples. They report on what happened, and at that moment, they instantly have another prayer meeting. They thank God for what had happened. They ask God for courage. They ask God for boldness. It's in uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 23. 
And they have this time of prayer, and the Bible says at the end of verse 31 that the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. Wow. We see in chapter 5, Peter boldly confronting Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not going to delve into that one. You can read through that on your own. But God is working in an amazing way, and, and multitudes are flocking to Jerusalem. People are being healed. God is lifting up the disciples in the, in the eyes of the people. <clears throat> and we see so much that's going on here. The supernatural miracles being performed over and over. The influence of the disciples is growing. Word is getting out, not to just to Jerusalem, but to the cities all around. And people are coming from those cities, and they're bringing their sick, and they're bringing those that are demon-possessed. They're bringing those that are, are, are maimed. And they're laying them in the streets on cots and on beds with the hopes that as Peter is walking by, maybe his shadow would fall on them and they could be healed. Folks, it's remarkable what's taking place here in the early part of the book of Acts. And I didn't catch this before either, but in verse 16 of Acts chapter 5, it talks about all these people that are coming. And at the end of that verse, it says, and they were healed every one. I don't see that even in Jesus' ministry, that everybody was healed. But in this situation, God is giving Peter and John. It wasn't a lack of ability on Christ. Here it's more uh, that God, this was God's will. He wants them to be lifted up. He wants to, to document and say, yes, this is the way that you need to go. Well, as we work our way on through the, the process here, in chapter 6, we see a little internal conflict. Actually, no, I've got to back up before the apostles are arrested again. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Does this make the council happy or unhappy? <laughs> They're angry, and they don't know what to do with it. They thought they'd put Jesus to death and stamp this whole thing out, and now it is just blowing up in their face. And I don't think we have any idea of the uproar that this is causing. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody's talking about the apostles. That's, it. That's all anybody can think about and talk about. And so we see the high priest uh, upset now, and he's arresting them again. They, they're brought before the council. And I don't, I don't have time to work through this whole passage. I love this one. I, this is going to be a fun one to preach uh, because God's got a sense of humor. They put them in the ward in the common prison, and then they say, hey, we'll have our trial the next day. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and takes the disciples out of prison. Doors are still locked. Guards are still standing out in front. He takes them to the temple and says, I want you to preach in the early morning hours. So the council convenes in the morning, go get the prisoners. They go there, and the prisoners are gone. They come back and say, hey, there's no prisoners here. Well, go find them. And they're trying to figure out what's going on. There's this flurry of activity, and finally somebody says they're in the temple, and they bring them in. Kind of a funny way to start court, I guess, is how that all works out. But they come, and they begin to talk to Peter and to the other disciples. <clears throat> and they're asking them, by what power, by what authority? Didn't we tell you not to do this anymore? We charged you, we commanded you. And Peter, verse 29, and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. He's not pulling punches. He's being very direct. In fact, earlier they say, you're trying to put his blood upon us. Well, do you remember the story of the crucifixion? When Pilate was washing his hands of innocent blood, what did the Jewish people say? His blood be upon us and upon our children. And now they're saying, you're making this happen. Well, they had, they had said that themselves. But the people are angry. The leaders are angry, and they're convicted in their hearts, and they're trying to seek the death penalty for the disciples. But Gamaliel intervenes, and you can read that in the account. They're beaten, and they're threatened, and they're released. And the Bible says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. 
And they went and continued preaching every day just like they'd been doing before. Well, in chapter 6, we see this internal conflict in the church. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. We see how Peter handles that with grace and with care and with prayer as they choose uh, deacons to handle some of the menial tasks so that Peter and James and John and the other disciples can continue in the word of God. We see a persecution that starts up here, and we're not going to look at all of this, but Stephen's sermon comes next. Uh, The beginning stages of Saul's persecution comes next. And so the, the Jewish people are being pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. And you remember several months ago, we talked about Philip and how he went up into Samaria. And he's preaching the word of God there, and people are getting saved, and he's discipling them. Word gets back to Jerusalem, so what happens? They send Peter. And we see that halfway through chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 14. Peter goes up to evaluate and Peter and John, they pray for the believers, and, and um, we see quite the, the, the ministry there as they follow up on what Philip was doing. Peter comes back to Jerusalem uh, via the rest of the Samaritan cities where he continues to preach and more people are being saved. He's got a faithful ministry in Jerusalem. That, I think, is Peter's hub, as I understand this here in the book of Acts. Uh, but in chapter 9, what do we see? We see Saul's conversion. And I think there's a, there's a specific connection between Saul getting saved, becoming Paul, and a little bit of decrease now in the persecution. I look down in verse 31 of chapter 9. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and they were multiplied. And next, in verse 32, Peter passed through all the quarters. He came down also to the saints which dwelt in Lydda. I think Peter was sent from Jerusalem at that point to go and encourage the churches, encourage these new converts in some of these cities up here in Samaria. And as we work through that process, we see that he heals Lydda there, or Aeneas there in Lydda. Um, He heals and raises Tabitha from the dead in Joppa. And then he stays in Joppa for a period of time, dwelling in the house of Simon the Tanner. And that brings us to Acts chapter 10. And wow, I'm looking at the clock. I'm, I'm in the weeds here, guys. That's what I am. I'm in the weeds. But we'll see what we can do here. Um, <clears throat> what happens in, in Acts chapter 10? We see through Cornelius, Jesus, uh, the Lord specifically saying, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The gospel is available to the Gentiles. Peter sees this vision of the sheet coming down with the different animals, unclean animals, and, and, and he's told to kill and eat. And he goes, I'm not going to kill and eat anything that's unclean. I've never done that any time in my life. And three times he has this vision, and God tells Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. What's the point? Cornelius is about to come and talk to you. He's a Gentile. Uh, He's a a Roman. I want you to go with him, uh, with his servants, and go talk to him. He's going to trust Christ as his Savior, baptize him. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. And this is now we see the the gospel turning to the Gentiles. It's, It's a significant part here of the book of Acts. And Peter is a primary figure in that. Even though he is the apostle to the Jews, Here we see him opening the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. We'll mention that a little more next week. Well, word travels fast what has just taken place there in Caesarea with Cornelius. And as Peter gets back now to Jerusalem, he's being challenged. We find this in chapter 11. He's being challenged by Jewish people that say, you can't can't allow the Gentile people to be saved. God give this to us. He didn't give it to the Gentiles. And so Peter replays his whole story with Cornelius and with the vision that God had given to him. And at the end of that time, these Jewish people changed their tune, and they indeed glorify God uh, for granting this grace to the Gentiles. It's an amazing story. God is working through Peter to accomplish these things. We get to chapter 12, and uh, we could take a whole sermon on this. 
Again, we don't always think about the humanity of these people that we're talking about. But Herod now gets involved in the story. And it says in verse 1 that he stretches forth his hands to vex certain of the church. He's getting involved. What does he do first? He takes James, the, son of, of John, or the, the brother of John, and he executes him. What is, John, what is James to Peter? Close friend. They were partners in business. I can't imagine how that affected Peter. Uh, that, that had to have hurt and hurt deeply. But Herod sees that it pleases the Jews, and so he promptly goes and arrests Peter. So now Peter is sitting in prison. His best friend has just been executed. What's he thinking to himself? <laughs> I'm probably next. He probably figures the end of his life has come. Well, I put in the notes, there's a, the Passover provides a stay of execution. Uh, they're not going to do anything during the, the Passover time. And everybody in the church is praying for Peter. They're on their knees. They're begging God to deliver him. And as you see later in that chapter, God indeed does that. It's a fascinating story. God bringing Peter out of that prison and over to the church prayer meeting where he finally convinces them that he really is there and they open the door and let him in. Shortly after that, that Herod uh, boasts before God of his greatness and God ends up striking him dead. It's a, it's a pretty rough story there, but I think that lessens the persecution a, a little bit as well. Whatever happened there, it seems like Peter stayed in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, that was his primary place of going, of serving. <clears throat> and yet he did travel at other places. Uh, we see one more instance where we see Peter in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Here a group of Jews begin teaching that circumcision was required for the Gentiles. They were trying to put the Jewish law on the Gentiles. And Peter or Paul and Barnabas are debating about that, and there's this big division and dissension about it all. And so they all meet in Jerusalem, and there's a council with the elders of the, of the, of the, the believers here, the apostles. Um, Paul is there, Barnabas is there. And Peter takes a leadership role in that meeting. And he gets up and he says, hey, the Lord has opened up the door of salvation to the Gentiles. Who are we to fight against that? He's made it very clear. And through his leadership and through Paul's and through James there in that passage, uh, they come to the right conclusion that we're no longer under the law. And they send those letters out to the churches as the result of that counsel. Well, you can look these passages up on your own. I'll just mention it briefly. Uh, we see Peter mentioned also in the book of Galatians and then one time in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, there's three interactions that Peter has with Paul. Uh, one time there in the earlier days, he spends 15 days with Peter uh, there in Jerusalem. Imagine the theological discussions that those two had as they were together and just talking about uh, what the Lord was doing in their ministries. We see a second meeting in Jerusalem where Paul brings Barnabas and Titus, and Peter extends the right hand of fellowship to these two men, and Peter goes to the Jews, and they continue to the Gentiles. But a third meeting in Galatians chapter 2 and this one's in Antioch. And here we see Paul confronting Peter and challenging him in an area where Peter was deficient. Peter hadn't been treating the Gentile believers the way he should have been. Uh, he, was, he was fearing the multitude of the Jews instead of doing what he knew was right. You know, it's a good reminder that even strong believers falter at times. And if we have areas of difficulty in our life, things that are challenging for us, they're going to crop up again even later on in our lives. And it did here for Peter, but we also see a good example of how Paul uh, confronted his sinful behavior and brought him back and used it to restore him to a place of obedience again. Well, as we follow down to the end of the story, the end of Peter's life, Jesus had prophesied that he would be executed, that he'd be martyred. 
<clears throat> Peter understood that. We see in 2 Peter where he mentions that as well. He says, I'll be shortly putting off my tabernacle as Jesus himself has shown me. And we don't have biblical record of this, but historical and tradition seems to be pretty consistent that uh, Peter's execution was carried out by Nero in Rome around 64 AD. And as Peter was going, so tradition tells us, as Peter was going to his execution, death by crucifixion, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way as my Lord. Would you crucify me upside down? And that's the way we understand Peter's life was taken from him there. Uh, toward the end, he was an old man at that point. He'd served faithfully for all those years. Didn't consider himself worthy to suffer the same way Jesus did. What a difference between the man who denied Jesus by the fire in the courtyard and the one who was restored around the fire on the shores of Galilee. You know, he left that courtyard a broken man. But Jesus' prayer was fulfilled and Peter went on to serve his Lord with great power. Failure doesn't mean the end. And it's a great reminder for us. God wants to use us as well, just like he did Peter. And just like God took Peter's failure and used it for good, God can take the failures in your life and in my life and use them to accomplish his purpose as well. God is patient with us, just like he was with Peter. And if we'll work with him, he'll use those failures. We've got to confess our sin. We can't live in our sin and expect God to use us. But as we confess those sins and as we seek the Lord's forgiveness and restoration, he will use us. He will conform us to the image of his son. And sometimes that's going to mean trouble and suffering, isn't it? We've looked at that over the past several weeks. Sometimes it means God's going to let us flounder for a little bit in our own strength. Trying to figure it out on our own. We can see that in Peter in his life to show us that, that our sufficiency is not where it needs to be. But then sometimes God's going to allow us to fall. He's going to allow us to fail. And he does that for a purpose, so that when he restores us, this failure on the short term doesn't become a long-term failure, and God can still accomplish great things in our lives. It's a reminder as we close that failure is not final, because God's grace is operable. As long as there's grace, failure isn't permanent. And we see that here in the man Peter. And my question for you is, does the well of God's grace ever run dry? And the answer to that is no. So I don't know where you're at. There's times in my life where I failed my Lord. I think all of us can agree with that, just like Peter did. But don't look at those times of failure as a permanent thing. Allow God to restore you just like he did Peter. Allow him to take his grace and his love and bring you back to a place where you will even be more usable for the cause of Christ than you were before the failure.